We are going to be kicking off our series in the book of Philippians, which we're going to do over quite a number of weeks. And we've called it To Live Is Christ. And Philippians really needs a little bit of context. It's only a short letter, but it's good for us to know something of the backstory of how this church in Philippi came about. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to read a fair bit of Acts chapter 16 together before we pray um, just to get something of the backstory of what actually happened here and how this church came about. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, we're going to be reading from verse 6 uh, through to the end of that chapter. It'll be on the screen for you as well if you haven't got your Bible with you, but always great to have your Bible with us with you as well because often during the sermon uh, it's not on the screen and uh, it's much better to engage with God's word yourself as it's as we open it up and expound it together. Acts chapter 15, sorry, 16 and verse 6. Uh, and they, so kind of starting halfway through a little bit, and they, that is Paul and his companions, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding, that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptised and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Verse 16, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, who is Timothy, and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. 
the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon him, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors was open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Do not harm yourself. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them out into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Because you don't treat Roman citizens like that. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Father, we just want to pause as we, as we dive into this new series that we're going to be doing as a church, Lord. Uh, this awesome letter to the Philippians. And we want to come and we want to ask, Lord, that you would bless it to us overall. Uh, Lord, that there might be uh, real uh, works done in our lives by the power of your word through this letter to the Philippians. Father, we ask for, your, for the help of your spirit. Even here as we've read the backstory, we've seen that Paul and his companions preached or proclaimed or spoke about Jesus to others and you were at work opening people's hearts And there was new life. So, Father, please bring us continual new life by your word, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the great things about being part of a community like this is every now and then a newborn baby arrives Uh, on a Sunday morning and uh, there is that fresh sense of wonder that yeah kind of dissipates after a little while but nevertheless 
at that early stage, there is, there is this new little life that simply, some months before, wasn't there, did not exist. And there they are, wrapped up in their little chariot of various types, three wheels, four wheels, I think you can get probably five wheelers, and they're here among us. There they are with all their personality, all their potential. Yes, their genetics, their intelligence yet undiscovered, their athleticism there in seed form perhaps. And although we may have a bit of a grasp on the biology side of these things, there is a very real sense and particularly for parents when it happens initially at that very first moment, that we have seen a miracle of new life right before our very eyes. There's another kind of birth that we call the new birth that is also astonishing to see. When someone experiences Spiritual birth through hearing the message about Jesus' death and resurrection and through responding to that message with repentance and faith. Just like Lydia did in Acts 16 as we read. And the Philippian jailer and it seems both their households, which isn't just the average family of, you know, mom and dad and two kids. In that day, it's a household. It's all the children. It's probably the servants. It's everybody involved in that person's particular household, which could be 30 or 40 people. So here we are in Acts chapter 16. The gospel has come to Philipp- to the city of Philippi and without not much time passing, there's probably 80 people who have come to new birth through faith in Jesus Christ. There is new birth everywhere. This is what happened when God called Paul and Timothy to go to Philippi. We're told they were convinced in verse 10 that they were called by God to preach the gospel or to uh, tell people about Jesus and his death and resurrection in Philippi. So they did that and God was at work and people were converted People were born again. People were made new. And not only that, but as individuals were born again, don't miss the fact that a church was born. A church was born as these, let's say, for example, 60 to 80 people became Christians. We've got a church. That's actually how the church is formed. It's made up of people who have been born again through Jesus Christ and brought together in Jesus Christ. Here it is. We've got a church in Philippi. People with new life in them. New life that wasn't there before. It came about through the, through the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus and the power of God at work in people's lives. And this ought to be our ongoing prayer, don't you think? It ought to be our ongoing prayer that, you know, uh, cut away all the external distractions and the things that we might get caught up talking about. The main thing that we need to be talking about and looking for the opportunity to talk about is Jesus himself. And as he is spoken about, 
It's then that God uses the message about him by the power of his spirit to bring people from spiritual death to spiritual life. So some 12 years later, Paul is in prison in Rome and he hears about them. He's an old man now. He's been to Philippi back through a couple of times just on his way, dropping in uh, to see how they're going. But now he's in prison and he's, got, he's heard news from them and so we have this letter as a result from him to the Philippians, which is going to be our focus now. And what a letter it is. There's a whole bunch of things that you can say about this letter, but just, just briefly, kind of overall, it's a deeply personal letter. He knows these people well, and he's writing to them pastorally and personally. It is a powerful letter. If this letter of Paul is applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit, I can tell you now, we will not be the same. We will be changed. We will grow. We will, we will become more like Jesus and so on. It's rich in gospel truth, which is one of the reasons why we've decided to do it over a long period of time. Because we don't want to skip over those, those kind of key truths or doctrines, if you like, that are there in, in this little letter. We want to kind of stop and take a closer look and sort of dig down into them. It's a deeply personal letter. It's rich in truth and helpful in terms of prayer and growing and having a focus, the focus that God wants us to have in our lives. We've called it to live is Christ, which is obviously what Paul says later in chapter 1, which we'll get to in about six weeks, somewhere like that. Um, today, our focus is going to be verse, the first two verses, but let's read verses 1 to 6 just by way of introduction to the letter. Again, it'll be on your screen, but turn in Philippians as well. Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, or Silas, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. With the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Hear how personal it is? Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. So, verse 1 and 2. Today I want us to see three things that we can dig out of verse 1 and 2 that are true of us, true of all of us, if we've come to know Jesus, if we've been saved by Jesus, if we've been born again, if we've experienced the new birth that comes through repentance towards God and faith in Jesus. The first of those is that we are servants of Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're professed to know him, then this is something that's true of you. You are a servant of Christ Jesus. That's how Paul describes himself and Timothy. And the word servant here in our translation, it's probably a little bit soft, to be honest. As in the original language, some or other translations say bond servant, which means a owned servant, or Slave. 
slave. Servants of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus or slaves of Christ Jesus, which immediately kind of, you know, we push back on that idea of slave. But, um, we, it could sound a bit demeaning, especially for an apostle. I mean, this is Paul, right? He's like, he's like up there in terms of, you know, God's plans and purposes. Now, it could be slaving, the idea of slave. It could be a bit demeaning, depending on who's your master. Uh, depending on what your master's like. And we are told who his master is here, aren't we? Servants of Christ Jesus. They are servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. He is their master or their owner. And what do we know about him? Well, here's just a few things, just from the two titles that he uses here for him. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the king, God's king, God's anointed king who will save his people and reign forever. As the name Jesus literally means, which means God saves, not only is the king, he is the king who rescues. He's the king who saves. And we know how he's done that by his death and his resurrection. So he's the one who dies and rises to redeem sinners and establish God's kingdom. What's he doing now? Well, he's seated, we're told, at God's right hand now, working out his purposes in his world, as the credo theme says, through his church, in the power of his spirit. And we know that he will one day return to reign forever over everything. And Paul says, we are servants or slaves of him. And he's not a bad master. He's pretty good. He gave himself for us because he loves us. And we know that until he comes back, he invites us as his people to join him in what he's doing in his world. And that's exactly what Paul means here when he uses this term. What kind of master or owner is he? There isn't any better. Now Paul could have used the term apostle here, but he deliberately chose not to, and I think for two reasons. One is they know him pretty well. Lots of letters he introduces them by an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't do that here. They know him pretty well. That's probably tucked away. They already know he's an apostle. But I think secondly and more importantly and more relevant for us, he's going to call them in this letter to a life of humility and servanthood. Perhaps you know some of the passages in Philippians that bear that out. We'll get to them. He's going to call them to live lives that are all about Christ. To adopt the mantra for their lives that he is, he has, that to live is Christ. So he's setting that up just in this first uh, verse. So servants of Christ Jesus or slaves of Christ Jesus lays the foundation perfectly for that. Paul's not only wanting to identify himself and his co-workers as 
slaves of Jesus, but he's wanting the Philippians to see themselves very much in the same way. And so he's wanting all those who ever read his, his letter to see themselves in that light also down through the ages. Now, like I said earlier, when we hear the word slavery, we kind of go, mm, you know, we, push, we kind of balk at it a bit, I think. Uh, but, but think about this for a minute. One of the ways, one of the reasons we do that is we make the mistake of thinking slavery means that what you need to do is find freedom and get out of slavery as quick as possible. And that's true in an earthly sense. You know, it's slavery that's, that's, that's bad and oppressive and so on. Yes, freedom is where people need to get to and others need to work towards that happening. And maybe you know the, the history of people like Wilberforce who put an end to slavery and all that. But in a biblical sense, it's kind of, it's kind of different. Because what the Bible says is that we're actually always slaves to someone or something. And before we become Christians, we actually are in slavery. And the masters are terrible. The masters are oppressive. Our own desires and passions, we are driven by and enslaved by them. By our own sin. By our own selfishness. By every trinket the world offers that turns into our next idol. We're enslaved to that. And the Bible's pretty clear also saying that outside of Christ we are under the power and authority of the Prince of Darkness. So we're enslaved to him, to Satan himself. And when Jesus rescues us, he delivers us from the kingdom of darkness and brings us into his kingdom, purchases us with his own blood for himself and we become slaves of the king of grace and mercy. I know which one I would choose now. It took me a long time to work that out. I needed God to open my heart and give, open my blind eyes to see that I was actually enslaved. So, servants of Christ Jesus is actually not a bad title at all. Slaves of Christ, is, it's pretty good. He's the best master you can ever have. So I wonder how we see ourselves here at GBC as a church. I wonder how we see ourselves. Kings of our own destinies making all our own decisions without any reference to the king? Or as people whose lives are about the king, who humbled himself, as Philippians says, and became obedient, didn't hold on to equality with God, but humbled himself, emptied himself, and was obedient even to death, to death on a cross. What about you personally? How do you see yourself in terms of your walk with Jesus? When you look in the mirror, let me ask you this question. What do you see? What do you see? I know, probably lots of things. If you're kind of you know, getting on a little bit like myself, you know, wrinkles, grey hair or no hair or whatever, you, know, you might see a whole bunch of things when you look in the mirror. But can I, can I encourage you tomorrow when you look in the mirror or even later today? 
to see yourself as a servant of Christ. Wow. Servant of Christ. But let me encourage you as well and let me you know, gently warn you, if you do see yourself that way, that will change the trajectory of your life. You'll probably need to do some repenting of where you've been you know, running your own ship. He will be the one who determines what your life is ultimately about. If you make a resolve to live as a servant of Jesus... You won't just do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. His kingdom will be a filter on that question. You will joyfully submit yourself to his powerful and yet liberating reign. Because you've come to know him as we will see and you've come to know and you're getting to know That to live is Christ. Servants of Christ Jesus. Secondly, what else does he he kind of describe us as? Well, in the second half of verse 1, he describes us as, as saints in Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now again, we could just skip over this. And move on to the next thing, but we're going to slow down, we're going to pause, we're going to have a closer look and dig in. So let's unpack it. What does saints mean? What does it mean? What doesn't it mean? It's probably another important question. Well, the word literally means holy ones. Holy ones. To the holy ones in Christ who are at Philippi, which again includes the idea of being called out by God and set apart by him for holy purposes. Set apart for holy purposes. This is Paul's term for the Christians in Philippi, revealing not only who they are, but also that their lives now have, get this, this is true of you, their lives and yours now have divine purpose. Divine purpose. You have been set apart for God's purposes. Now the question, of course, is how? How have you become a saint? Particularly when you kind of probably, if you're honest, you know yourself and yeah, a lot of the things that go on both in your heart and that maybe you know, come out in your behaviours don't seem to be particularly saintly or holy. How have you become Saints. Well, there's that little phrase, in Christ. To the saints in Christ who are at Philippi. They have become saints through Jesus and by virtue of being united to Jesus. These Philippians, they've responded in repentance and faith to the message of Jesus. And as a result, just like you, They were spiritually united to him. Spiritually united to him and then set apart in him. Again, the same is true of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are vitally connected to him. 
You've entered into a personal relationship with him and the fullness of his life now flows into your life. It's a bit of a hard one to get your head around. It's called union with Christ. But let me just remind you of a verse that Jesus, uh, a verse in John 15 from the words of Jesus. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For, for apart from me, you can do nothing. As in live for God and do what God's reserved you to set you apart to do. If you're not united to him, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. This is one of the most amazing realities of being a Christian. It sets Christianity apart from all man-made religion. It's supernatural. The life we live for Jesus is possible because of the life of Jesus that flows into our lives through being united to him by faith. This is what has resulted in the Philippians being set apart for him because they are in Christ. And so they're set apart for these holy purposes. So do notice, friends, won't you, that what makes someone a saint in a biblical sense, is not just because they've reached a certain spiritual milestone in their lives and now, oh, they're a real saint. That's not what makes someone a saint. It's not because a certain religious body decides that they are a saint or not. It's not because they've done a certain amount of miracles in their life or, strangely enough, once they're dead. That's not what makes a person a saint. It's not because the Pope determines that a person has reached a certain standard and now they're going to be canonised and made a saint. That's not what makes someone a saint. What makes someone a saint, according to Philippians? Well, whether you are in Christ or not. Whether you are in Christ or united to Christ. It's based on repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. It's dependent on our response to the gospel of Jesus, which means this. All genuine believers, through repentance and faith, by virtue of being united to Jesus, not by the human effort or good works, according to the Apostle Paul, are saints. Holy ones. Set apart by God for holy or divine purposes. Wow. Don't know whether you realised when you walked in this morning that you were a saint. If you're a follower of Jesus. Not sure how that's how you think about yourself often. If you're aware of your sin and failure, probably often not. But that says you're probably measuring whether you're a saint or not based on your performance. But whether you're a saint or not is not based on your performance. It's based on whether you know Jesus and you're not united to him through repentance and faith. An interesting thing, you know what? If we get a grip on who we are as saints, there's more, much more of a chance that we might live that out in increasing degrees. Never perfectly. but you live out who you are 
Is that how you see yourself as a Christian? Again, is that how we see each other? Are all these people just those annoying people I have to put up with on Sundays and gather with and you know, occasionally I'll, you know, I might talk to a few of them but you know, the rest of them are just whatever? Or do you see the church as the saints together, God's blood-bought, redeemed, rescued saints? Notice that we have saints plural here. Often, again, we're, we're so used to you know, individualising God's word and just making it all about us as individuals. But it's plural here, isn't it? To the saints in Christ who happen to be geographically located in Philippi. Same could be said of us. To the saints in Christ who happen to be at 2378 Albany Highway at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning or at other times during the week. This is just a geographical location. This is, I mean, it's nice. It's, a, it's got a good roof. You know, the seats are pretty comfortable and all the rest of it. And there's, but that's not what it's actually really fully about. It's fully about the saints. Now, I don't know whether, I think this tradition's kind of disappearing altogether, but uh, growing up, maybe like me, if you went to a family event, a family lunch or dinner, perhaps with a generation one or two above you, one of the things that would happen is that there would be this particular set of crockery and cutlery that was brought out only for those occasions. You didn't even probably know where it came from or where it was stored. Maybe it was on display, but more often than not, it just appeared. There's this, this, is, this is grandma's special crockery and cutlery and it's out today because this you know, this is a pretty serious special event and she's obviously saying that by using it that stuff is reserved or set apart <laughs> for special purposes that's the idea here god has set apart his people for glorious purposes for his work in the world. So encouraging. So encouraging. I want to I ask you this morning, do you see the beauty of the church today? I know we can seem pretty ordinary bunch at times, and we are. But in another sense, as those united in Christ, we are saints. Set apart by God through Jesus. To live for his purposes. So what are you doing with the life that God has set apart for himself? How are you living that out in your day to day? Is Jesus' priorities and purposes front and centre for you? Not perfectly. Don't hear me wrong. We're a work in progress, I know. But are they there? If they're not, there's a few reasons why they might not be. One, we've already touched on, you don't actually know who you are in Christ. So you don't live it out. You haven't grasped your true identity in Christ, or more to the point, it hasn't grasped you enough to modify and change you. You try to modify your behaviours, but it doesn't work by your own effort. It comes through the vine. Another reason, you can actually be rebelling against God. 
in overt ways or even in religious ways. Rebelling against what he intends for you as his child. And if you are his child and you're doing that, let me just warn you, you are asking your father God to discipline you. You actually are asking him to do that. And if you are his child, he will because he loves you. He loves you. So why not save yourself the pain (laughs) and repent and turn back to him and lean into who you are as someone set apart by him for amazing purposes in his world. There's another reason. There's another one, of course, that you're actually not a saint yet. You're not actually united to Christ. You haven't really ever understood the gospel and responded to it. You've never actually been born again. That's a possibility. So no wonder Jesus and his purposes are not front and centre if that's the case. I want to say to you today, if that's you and you know that today, praise God. Praise God that you're aware. Much worse for that to be the case and you not to know. Because that means today could be the day that all changes. Today could be the day that you experience new life. If that's where you are and you're able to acknowledge that before God and ask him for his mercy and grace in Jesus, today could be the day, like Lydia, you realise at a whole new level that Jesus died for you, even for your religious rebellion. Today could be the day when you actually do repent. And believe and become, not because of your own effort, but purely by God's grace, a saint. And if that happens for you, not only will you become a servant of Christ Jesus and a saint in Christ Jesus, but the last thing that we see here today will also be true of you, that you will be adopted by God through Jesus. We see that in verse 2. Let's just read that together. Paul writes as he greets them, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not as explicit, but do notice that he uses the phrase, From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we see is this, isn't it, friends? The Philippian believers have become, get it, children of God. Children of God. They've been born again and they're now children of God. They've heard the message. They've heard the good news. They've turned to God in repentance and faith and God has adopted them as his children. He is now their father along with everyone everywhere who likewise comes to faith In Jesus, and that means they are under God's fatherly care. Hence the words grace and peace from God. Grace and peace from God. This is Paul's heart towards them, 
And that's what he's referring to, God's fatherly care. Because clearly, if you think about it, this grace here, it can't be the grace that saved them, can it? They're already Christians. It can't be the grace that saved them, so it must be ongoing grace and ongoing peace. It must be grace that sustains them as followers of Jesus in Philippi, this Roman city. It must be the grace that grows them, the grace that teaches them, the grace that refreshes them, and so on. The grace of God that we clearly from this need, how often? Pretty regularly. Pretty regularly. Then there is the peace that comes also. And that comes from the Hebrew idea of shalom, which is this inner settled peace. Uh, Someone has put it this way, the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, so not fearing anything from God and content with their earthly circumstances no matter what they are. Philippians 4, 7, we know this verse probably quite well, speaks of the peace which passes all understanding. This is peace from God. It's peace that comes from outside this world, which can only offer us peace based on good circumstances. It's peace of God, peace from God, and it comes to us through Jesus. So what we have here is exactly what we need to be what God has called us to be, to be servants of Christ. That's not always going to be easy. Clearly it wasn't for Paul and his companions. Um, seem to remember something about the beating of rods. Now that may not be the case for us. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Who knows? But it indicates that following Jesus in this world is not a walk in the park. So we're going to need grace ongoing. And there are times in which we're going to be unsettled by things that happen. And so we're going to need peace from God. All coming to us through Jesus. So, as we, as we finish this morning, Just from these two verses. Three things that are true of you if you're a follower of Jesus. You are a servant of Christ. Good to square that one away, don't you reckon? Kind of for that issue and that matter to be settled once and for all in how you do life. You're a saint. Set apart together with God's people for the purposes of God in his world. And then it just gets even better. You're adopted. God is now your father. And you are under, we are under his heavenly and fatherly care. And he continues through his son, who is seated at his right hand, making intercession for us as our great high priest. God continues to pour his sustaining grace and his settling peace into our lives as we come to him regularly for it.
To live is Christ. To live is Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the identity that you give to us through your redeeming work. We were lost. We were slaves to our own sin and to darkness and and to death. And you've redeemed us through your Son, made us your servants, set us apart as your people, as your saints, and adopted us as your children. Father, we ask, Lord, that we might delight in these realities, that we might love you deeply with our lives in response, that we may glorify you that we may celebrate what you have done. Lord, that we might not be able to keep it in wherever you've placed us, but that we might burst with joy. Father, we thank you for each other. We thank you for the church. Help us to see each other and ourselves through your eyes, from your perspective. Father, we ask all of this, that we might be the people you want us to be more and more. We thank you for all that you are already doing in our lives. And we come to you and we say, Lord, keep changing us. Complete the work you've begun in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.